The Psalms live in your city, on your street, in your family. The Psalms tell your story. It's a story of hope and disappointment, of need and provision, of fear and mystery, of struggle and rest, and of God's boundless love and amazing grace. People in the Psalms get angry, they grow afraid, they cry out in confusion, they survive opposition, they hope for better days, they hurt one another, they run from God, they trust in God, they make foolish choices, they ask for forgiveness, and they grow wiser and stronger. They are people just like you and me. I love that quote. And I love that quote because I love what it says about the Psalms. And so this is a series, a little series, a mini-series that's going to take us through uh, Easter for a pilgrim's life. Now, six years ago, I did a series entitled The Pilgrim's Life, which was from the New Testament and mostly from the epistles. This is going to be different. This is pilgrim's songs, a pilgrim's songs. And it's fitting that we call the mini-series that because we've just collectively studied, many of us, the pilgrim's progress together. These are songs for the journey of life, much like that road trip playlist that you put together for those family journeys. These are songs that aren't designed to help us escape from life or the realities of life, nor are they psalms that are helping us create our best life now, at least not in the way we normally hear that phrase being used. These are psalms, songs, about confronting life in all of its mess how to walk faithfully with God and with one another. Because the Bible simply doesn't promise acres and acres of green pasture. Rather, thorns and mud and quicksand and storms, that's our experience. And I know that you know this because many of you have lived it. Many of you are living it even today. And saying that last statement in the way that I did reminds me of another thing I wanted to say by way of introduction to this series, that this is poetry. The Psalms are poetry. Therefore, the writers, and this morning the writer being David, a figure that we know well from Old Testament history, David is not simply after you understanding propositional truth. David's actually after your emotions, your affections, your imagination. And so in order to get that, in order to get at that, David and the rest of the writers in this mini-series in the Psalter, as we call it, they're going to use gripping and and graphic imagery and words. They're going to use repetition that we call in the Hebrew language parallelisms to emphasize certain things. They want to paint a picture. They want to tell a story. They don't want to simply just get across a point. And so there's a danger for me (laughs) as a preacher as a preacher who wants you to 
get points, who wants you to understand propositional truth, who wants you to remember God's promises, there's a, there's a chance that you miss the effect of the psalm. And so my encouragement to you, even before we open it up and, and read it together, my encouragement to you is to read it again. Read it a couple times more today. For lack of a, a better phrase and image, let it, let it wash over you. Let it bathe you. Because I recognize that these, this imagery and these words are going to hit you and your experience and your walk with the Lord in unique ways that, that I may not talk about here this morning. So today we look at the first of five psalms for the next five weeks. None of these psalms we've looked at together as a congregation. These are all new psalms to us, but they, I suspect, are not new songs to you. Psalm 27, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm, just 14 verses. Psalm 27, listen as I read and follow along. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp around me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up and above all my enemies around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give Him glory. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. 
the cancer diagnosis, the loss of a family member or a friend, the inability to get out from under financial debt, that beloved relationship that is currently silent and seemingly dead, the chronic pain that has persisted for years upon years, that coworker who is out to destroy your career. This is life in a sinful and fallen world. This is your life. Life happens, and it hurts, and it's inescapable and undeniable. The question for us as God's people, the question for us as pilgrims journeying to the land that is promised for us, is in the midst of the messiness, what will you preach to yourself? Because you will preach something to yourself. You've got to handle it in some way. The world handles it in its own way. The world runs and hides, denies that things are really that bad. The world distracts itself with a million things and just hopes for better days. The world self-medicates through a myriad of things, alcohol, drugs, other addictions, or it finds a doctor to prescribe something even more powerful. Then there is David. There is David's way. David's not perfect, although the Scriptures do talk about him being a man after God's own heart, but he's not perfect. And yet here in Psalm 27, what he does for the people of God, what he does for us this morning in a broken, fallen world is he gives us good counsel for life. He models for us three gospel realities that can be ours by the grace of God in the slog of life. You see, Psalm 27 is a psalm of hope. It's a song of of sheltering in the midst of the storm of life. It's David's song, but it's also our song, given to us here by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us over many generations. Yes, David wrote this psalm, and David writes as a man in covenant with Yahweh, a man confronted with the harshness of his own life, which we'll talk about a little bit in just a moment. And at the heart of David's journey is one thing. He is seeking the Lord in the midst of the fog of war, in the midst of the battles he's facing. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. That's at the heart of the psalm. And it's at the heart of what we're doing here this morning. It's at the heart of why we gather each Lord's Day morning. But I remind you here at the very outset of thinking about this psalm as the new covenant people of God is that David, what David saw only in shadowy form, 
Though his promise was certain, we see in full reveal. And so when we read this psalm, when we digest these gospel realities that I'm about to give you, we do so in relationship with David's God, in relationship with the God of Israel, Yahweh himself, through the work of the Son that would come from the line of David himself. We too seek the Lord, but we do so this morning through Jesus, the one that he sent, the one that David trusted God would send, but David couldn't see. It's Jesus alone that allows us to claim these possessive pronouns that, oh Lord, you are my light. You are my salvation. You see, we can only say that. You can only say that if you are united with Jesus. Otherwise, there is much, much to fear in this world. And so before I even unpack this psalm a little bit, I call you to Jesus to look to the one whom God has sent. Well, this morning we begin with fear. Our first gospel reality is this. We can be defiant in the face of fear. We can be defiant. You can be defiant in the face of of fear. It's the first way that David counsels us this morning. David had a lot to fear in his life. He literally feared for his life. Do you hear these vivid descriptors that he gives? Evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, an army encamps around me, false witnesses breathe out violence against me. This isn't some small matter. This isn't David having a bad day. This isn't a first world problem. This is scary stuff. David is fearing for his very life. And yet in the midst of that fear, David preaches to his own heart this confidence. In comparison with all of what I see, in, in comparison with every circumstance that is my reality, I know that my God is bigger and better. What he does is he replaces fear with fear. He replaces earthly fear with godly fear. You see, the fear of the Lord, that, that reverent, godly awe and wonder that is due our Creator, that's not just the beginning of wisdom, as the Proverbs say. It's also the crushing of whatever this life might throw at us. So David fears Yahweh, and he declares these two images of who Yahweh is. And the first is light. 
Yahweh is light. And in the New Testament, we hear about light all the time. It seems there's a barrage of light. You know, this is the only place in the Old Testament where Yahweh is described as my light. He's compared to light. He's spoken about emanating light, but this is the one place where it is part of his very person, is part of his very character. It's a descriptor of who he is. He is my light. And there are lots of ways that we can look at light. There are lots of ways we can interpret light. In, a, in one sense, light is, is revelation, right? It's illumination. It shows us the way. Your word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. In another sense, light can be moral purity. In him there is no darkness at all. David can certainly be thinking about those aspects of light. But I think in another sense, particularly here in contrast to the fear that he's feeling, light exposes things as they really are. Light reveals what wants to remain hidden. Light reveals what maybe isn't really even there. So when David says, Yahweh, you're my light, he's saying that you show me what's not ultimately scary. By your word, by your spirit, by your perspective, I see things clearly. Psalm 18, 28, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. And so the things that threaten David, the things that threaten us, don't seem so fearful when they're brought into the light of who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is capable of. We can be defiant in the face of fear. And then he gives this other image of the Lord as a stronghold. Verse 1, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Stronghold is not a word that we use very much. This Hebrew word is translated into English in a variety of different ways. The Lord is my defense, my fortress, my helmet, my protection, my refuge, my safety, my strength. All of those are acceptable translations of all the things that we look to and long for in order to be secure and stable, particularly when things are bad. If you are God's child, you are under the watchful care of the Father, of a Father who governs every inch of this planet, who governs every natural law and answers to no one but Himself. That's a God who is a stronghold in the face of fear. And that's what David's reminding you of. This is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28. For those that God loves, all things work together for good. Therefore, we can be defiant in the face of fear. Man can do nothing to you. 
It's only those who stand in his way that will stumble and ultimately fall. I actually like Eugene Peterson, who wrote The Message as well as a number of other books. I like his loose translation of these verses. He says this, So with him on my side, I'm fearless, afraid of no one and nothing. When all hell breaks loose, I'm collected and cool. Child of God, you can be defiant in the face of fear. That's what David's reminding you of. That's the first thing. The second is this. We can delight in the midst of trouble. We can delight in the midst of trouble. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a do you have a happy place? You've heard of that phrase, right? I'm just going to go to my happy place. It seems to be a popular notion these days. It's the world's lingo for a place that you can escape the stresses and sorrows of this world and feel at ease. Maybe it's a pond. Maybe it's a park. Maybe it's a a walk through the woods. I even read of a guy who his happy place was the airport. That is not my happy place. But his happy place was the airport because it represented for him freedom and the ability to travel and go wherever he wanted to go. Well, I don't want to overly knock happy places, but David points to something better and deeper and richer. And it's a place that represents not just an escape from, but a true reality that can be gained nowhere else. See, as we move on in this psalm, Psalm 27, there's a dominant image that comes to the forefront in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, the house of the Lord. Verse 4, the temple of God. Verse 5, His tent. Verse 6, His tent. That's where David wants to be. As he is seeking the Lord, as he is seeking to replace fear with fear, he needs to be here. In this tent, temple, house, place. All these words are describing the same thing. Those of you who know the Scriptures know what he's describing. But it's not so much the place. It's who's there. You see, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, it is there where the omnipresent God dwells uniquely with His people. It's there where the invisible God makes Himself visible. And that's why David wants to be there. That's why he wants to spend all of his days there. He longs to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. How can we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? When God is a spirit and has no body like men, we can't see him. What David is reminding the worshipers of Israel, what he is reminding the people of God who sit here today is this. In the physical seeing and hearing of the emblems and practices of worship, spiritual sight is given of the God to whom all of this points. 
And David says, in the Lord's presence there is delight. When his person, when his work becomes our focus, as the modern hymn writer says, all the things of earth grow strangely dim. What I want to communicate to you this morning is that this isn't just an Old Testament reality. Yes, the worship and the presence of the Lord, of Yahweh, was once localized, and it was once very clearly and profoundly displayed through the elements of Jewish worship. And yes, Jesus proclaimed in John 23 that the time will come when true worshipers won't need to be in Jerusalem, but they can worship God anywhere in spirit and in truth. But this is still for us today. Going back a couple weeks, the local church matters, right? And not just because it binds us together in community and relationship, but it matters because God meets us uniquely here in this place. The work of Jesus is proclaimed here. And as we gather, God communicates His grace to His people. Not to get overly Presbyterian on you, but question and answer 154 out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of His mediation? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to His church the benefits of His mediation are all His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for, thou, for their salvation. And so, as one commentator wrote, trust needs the stimulus and renewal that come from confronting and contemplating religious representation of the revelation of God in liturgy, architecture, and proclamation. Let me read that again. It's kind of a heady quote, but it's good. Trust needs the stimulus and renewal that come from confronting and contemplating religious representation of the revelation of God in liturgy, architecture, and proclamation. Here is where we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord through words, through sacrament, through song, through prayer. Here is where we delight in Him and He delights in us. And it's not the religious activity, it's, it's who is behind that religious activity. All of this sensory activity around an invisible God creates an image, a beautiful image in our mind's eyes. And so as the world is churning in the midst of trouble, we can come into this place and we can delight, 
not in the troubling circumstances themselves, not even in the certainty that they are soon going to be over because we don't know, but in the God who reigns over them, in the God who made us, in the God who saves us. We can delight in the midst of trouble. And then finally, one more gospel reality. There is a future worth waiting for. It's the last thing David counsels us in, that there is a future worth waiting for. The last two verses of this psalm are built upon the truths that we already discussed, but they are a balm for the soul. Let me read them again. Verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now let's talk about waiting for just a moment. No one likes to wait. We spend too much of our lives waiting, but waiting in this sense, in the biblical sense, is active. It's not passive. It's not just about what we're waiting for. It's a recognition that in the trouble, God's promises are true that we ought to cling to them, that His presence ought to be sought, His beauty ought to be beheld in the sanctuary, and that in all of that, He is changing us in the midst of the waiting. As one author put it, biblical waiting isn't about the suspension of meaning and purpose. It's not like waiting in line at Costco. There's no meaning in that. Rather, by means of the wait... This is a quote. He is causing me, he's causing us to see and experience new things about him and his kingdom. And all of this sharpens me, enabling me to be a more useful tool in his redemptive hands. And so we can wait. We can be strong and we can take courage because we know that God is at work and that we are caught in this in-between. God is not and has never been. And then about the future. I think some of you, when you hear this, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, we immediately go to eternity, right? To the inheritance that is waiting for us. Maybe you thought of Paul's words. I certainly did in Romans 8, 18, where he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And that's certainly true. And that certainly does give hope in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the struggle, But David, I hear, I don't think is just talking about the eternal future in verse 13. He's communicating that he will live to see the Lord's goodness. You will live to see the Lord's goodness. How? Because wealth and prosperity are headed your way? No, not necessarily. See, we define the good life with the physical. But the good that God always gives 
is not dependent upon your circumstance. And it's not necessarily physical because it's himself. The goodness of the Lord may be communicated to you through healing, through some other earthly blessing, or his goodness may simply come to you by way of his sustaining grace, by way of his presence in the midst of the storm. And so that's why this last gospel reality is not just for, well, this will all be over soon, but this is for the land of the living. Brothers and sisters, a pilgrim can journey through the storms of life, delighting in the face of fear, excuse me, defying in the face of fear, delighting in the midst of trouble, and waiting on the Lord. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's actually not. It's hard, which is why it's good that you're here, because you need to be reminded of these things. These are true, and they're for your life, and they're for my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, David. Father, David suffered. He feared. His life was seemingly so much more traumatic than any of our lives, than any of what we've experienced. And yet by his grace, by your grace, you gave him a resolve, and a perspective that you invite us to embrace. And so, through the work of your Son and by the power of His Spirit, which dwells in our hearts, we ask for your strength. We ask for your grace to make this song our song. Take these truths and embed them deep in our hearts, in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.